Hey there, welcome to another episode of The Quantified Body. I'm your host, Damien Blankensop. We've been strategically tackling some of the big risks in our lives. We've looked at cancer a bit. We have looked at heart disease. These are the big ones. Today, we're looking again at heart disease because it's one of the most likely things to shorten our lifespan. We're going to be doing more of a deep dive into how to quantify your real heart disease risk. You probably know that heart disease is a really, really big deal. One in three deaths that occurs in the United States today is caused by cardiovascular disease, heart disease. One out of two Americans will suffer some form of heart issue. That's 50%. That is pretty insane. The total cost of all of this, of heart disease, is estimated at $650 billion in the U.S., That's more than any other disease by far. So heart disease is a big risk that it's worthwhile taking a look at, but it's not a big risk for everyone. For some people, there are other things that they should be looking at. So it's important to know if this is something that you personally need to act on, if you need to be proactive to reduce your risk for it. Is it something you need to be concerned about? The way we go about this on this show is that we quantify it. We quantify our risk. And as you'll see, accurately understanding your risk goes far beyond the typical cholesterol numbers. We discussed some of the problems of those in episode 7 with Jimmy Moore. You can go and check that out for a preamble before this show if you want. We're going to get deeper into the details in this show. And we're going to look at the metrics which will give you a real accurate view of your heart disease status and risk. Today's guest is Joel Kahn. In his career, he has focused on preempting cardiac disease, heart disease. His goal has been to reduce risks, to avoid the surgery, to avoid the drugs like Lipitor and other statins, which lower cholesterol. So he's focused on being really proactive, using information and interventions to make sure that heart disease never becomes a problem for you. He is Clinical Professor of Medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine and Director of Cardiac Wellness, Michigan Healthcare Professionals, PC. He is a graduate summa cum laude of the University of Michigan School of Medicine. He's authored two books, The Whole Heart Solution and Dead Execs Don't Get Bonuses, The Ultimate Guide to Survive Your Career with a Healthy Heart. I've read The Whole Heart Solution and it's an excellent introduction into the subject. I learned a lot of things that I wasn't aware of. The problems with some of this surgery today, their real potential to help you and why you really want to avoid them. In addition, of course, to more information on how to get an accurate read on your heart disease risk. So I strongly recommend that book if heart disease is a concern for you. He's also now set up the Can Center for Cardiac Longevity. And this emphasizes early imaging of arteries and extensive laboratory evaluation for the correctable root causes of heart disease. So Joel and his clinic have a very quantified and very longevity-focused approach to this whole area, which is great to see. I think this is an episode everyone should listen to because absolutely everyone is going to have to deal with this in their lives, if not with themselves, because absolutely everyone is going to come into contact with this in their life, wherever it be through themselves, their family, or their friends. We take painstaking notes, breaking out the tools, tactics, and the biomarkers mentioned in every episode of this show to make it really easy for you to go away and actually use this stuff, to take it away and put it into action. Those can all be found on thequantifiedbody.net, as well along with the transcript and the MP3 download. If you want this package of valuable notes in your email inbox every week, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and you'll get all of those automatically. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Joel Kahn. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Joel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, my complete pleasure. So I'd like to start with a quick brief story about how you became a cardiologist. Why did you get into specifically holistic cardiology? Sure. I knew really from a very young age that I wanted to be a cardiologist. I actually had a very small issue as a young child with a tiny hole in my heart. It healed, but I had the pleasure of seeing a very fine heart doctor. So I was about 18 years old and 
made a very good impression on me. You know, a few scary moments, but being in a big hospital as a little kid, but overall it was actually very positive and kind of pursued a fast track to uh, making this my career and been doing it now for almost 26 years after training. A holistic, I just always felt people are more than a pill. Doctors are wonderful people. Nurses are wonderful people. I don't have a, a chip on any shoulder, but I uh, was exposed to some really good people. I got very involved in nutrition. Nutrition led to mind-body. Nutrition led to standard and alternative fitness. Nutrition led to supplements, yoga, meditation. So um, I just poured my heart and soul into studying and learning and expanding my toolbox for patients. And then I said, I'm going to start writing about it because not enough are practicing it. So it's all been a wonderful journey that's far from over. I didn't realize you'd had that heart issue. I hope it's, is it completely resolved now? Yeah. Yeah. Very common, little worrisome to the parents. God bless my mother and father. But, uh, you know, it's another example of you don't get in the way of things. The body can often heal itself. And this was a relatively minor thing. So good for that. Great to hear. And it gave you the motivation to get started in all this. It's kind of funny how life always does that, kind of steers us in the direction we end up going. I was wondering, because you've been looking at this holistically, and a lot of people focus on the heart, cholesterol, and things like this. Could you explain what a formula to get heart disease would be in terms of a holistic view? Because when you read for your book, it gives you a much more global view of how heart disease comes about than we're typically used to. Yes. And, you know, we don't want to throw away the basics. In essence, there's two ways to approach this. The, our government, the United States government, has been publishing for a while, every 10 years, uh, major causes of death. And unfortunately, heart disease is at the top of that list, every list, uh, every 10 years. But that's not really the true causes. And starting in 1993, some very open-minded researchers said, let's talk about the true causes. And the true causes for 80 to 85% of premature deaths were three activities, smoking, poor fitness, and poor diet. And those true causes dwarfed everything else. And, and it also dwarfed genetics. It's a lifestyle world, baby, in terms of developing or preventing heart disease. So heart disease develops because we smoke too much, fortunately, under 20% of the population. And it used to be 40 to 50, so major inroads. It's falling. Uh, heart disease develops because we don't move enough. And we've gone from farming and active community 150 years ago to everything being tech-based. And we're blessed with all of that, but we are paying a price. And we now have to use, I have an app on my phone that reminds me to stand five minutes every hour. So we've come full circle where technology was the problem and now technology will provide solutions. And desks that go up and down so you can stand at work and such. And then you know, heart disease develops because of the change in our diet since the golden arches hit California in the 50s and all that's followed with giant companies and processed food and our crazy lifestyle where we don't have time to make meals from Whole Foods anymore. And those are the big three by far. My a good friend at Yale, head of preventive medicine, Dr. David Katz says, forks, fingers, feet. Fork, what you do with it will determine your life. Fingers, what you do in terms of smoking or not, and feet, whether you move and exercise that body. And it's really, that accounts for the majority of it. Sleep, stress, and love would be the other three. Adequate sleep, managing stress, and uh, including yourself in a community to be surrounded by loving, like-minded people would round out the top six. And that's a pretty holistic view, but it's not very difficult and it's not very sophisticated. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for that. And I think when we think about heart disease, we often think about heart attacks. But how does, is stroke related to heart disease as well? Is that one of the outcomes from the same kind of mechanism? Yes. Uh, strokes are a little bit more diffuse or widespread in terms of trying to nail down the cause. The number one listed cause of death in the United States is heart disease, such as heart attack. And number three is stroke with cancer between the two. Therefore, if you lump heart disease and stroke cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in every segment of the population over age 30, men and women. Uh, but stroke has a shared cause to heart attacks. That is, you can get clogged arteries from the lifestyle measures and in part genetics that I just ran through. But there are other causes of stroke, bleeding disorders, heart rhythm disorders. So 
The data is you can prevent about 80 to 90 percent of heart attacks through adopting a healthy lifestyle that's neither expensive nor difficult, just rarely done. And you probably can prevent about 60 percent of strokes. It's not as high because the cause is more commonly something other than atherosclerosis or hardening the arteries. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, because I, I wasn't really aware that they were so tightly related and preventable as well. In terms of stress and so many other mechanisms, could you talk a bit about the actual mechanisms behind heart disease? How this takes place? We're getting obviously into like crazy detail because it can get pretty detailed. But in your book, you talk about a variety of factors that we don't often think about, such as mitochondria and like the gut and, and other areas. And we don't think about those leading to heart disease. So could you give us some kind of overview to show us how like these mechanics are working to create the condition? Well, certainly. And uh, one term that readers, listeners may not be familiar with, but is important to grasp is something called your endothelium. And that is essentially inside every artery in your body, miles and miles of arteries carrying blood to your brain, your pelvis, your heart, your organs, your toes, is a one cell layer thin lining like wallpaper on a wall. And until about the 1980s, we thought it was simply just a cell barrier between blood on the inside and the structure of the wall on the outside. But now we know that the endothelium makes many chemicals, the most important of which, or perhaps the most crucial, is nitric oxide, a little simple gas that in a healthy artery is created in abundance. Artery making nitric oxide because of a healthy endothelium will resist the clotting of blood. You want the clotting of blood when you cut your finger. You don't want the clotting of blood when you're on the verge of a heart attack. The nitric oxide will prevent arteries from constricting or spasming, which again can trigger a heart attack, uh, can give you the Raynaud's blue, white, red fingers some people struggle with in the cold, leg pain on walking, and also the actual plaque, the actual buildup of debris in arteries is resisted by a healthy endothelium with healthy production of nitric oxide. So that's one physiology, and the good news is Things that we would associate with a healthy lifestyle, eating a lot of produce, fresh fruits and vegetables, exercising your body, adequate sleep, good blood pressure, good blood sugar, good cholesterol numbers from a healthy lifestyle are all associated with a healthy endothelium. And if you have a sick endothelium, you can make it healthier through lifestyle. All these things are resoundingly shown scientifically. For example, eating watermelon, very rich in chemicals that support nitric oxide. Hemp seed, very rich in chemicals that support nitric oxide. Other seeds and nuts, similarly, pine nuts. Uh, the other one, as you mentioned, inside every cell are little organelles or little uh, structures inside our cells. We have trillion cells, brain, heart, muscle, everywhere. And they're, the powerhouse to generate function is called your mitochondria. We don't think about them. We don't give our mitochondria the kind of shout out. We don't wake up in the morning and say, thank you, mitochondria, for taking care of me while I slept seven and a half hours. But indeed, aging is a stress on our mitochondria where they won't function to make energy so well. And unfortunately, we now know not only bad lifestyle, which is way too common, sedentary lifestyle, food-based poor lifestyle, smoking poor lifestyle, but environmental toxins clearly affect our mitochondria, pesticides, herbicides. There's data that genetically modified products and the herbicide Roundup affects our mitochondria. Nutritional deficiencies like low magnesium from not eating enough produce affects your mitochondria. And our cells will age quicker and won't function as well and may produce fatigue, may produce congestive heart failure, shortness of breath. But again, a area of science that is very hopeful because lifestyle can cause our mitochondria to be much more efficient and probably most strongly exercise. The actual number and health of your mitochondria in your muscles goes up when you exercise. You actually, you can be in your 40s and 50s and you can create more mitochondria by regularly exercising to a fairly vigorous degree for a while. So yeah, those are concepts that I think are important to share and uh, there's ways to boost the function of both our endothelium and our mitochondria, both by lifestyle. And I'm a fan of selected supplements. 
the supplement coenzyme Q10, CoQ10, which is more commonly used in Europe than the United States, helps support healthy mitochondria and something I encourage most of my patients to be on. Great. So on this show, we talk about a lot of biomarkers, and I know you have preferences for uh, different biomarkers from the standard. Could you, first of all, like walk us through some of the very typical, I mean, when most people go to their doctor, they get given the standard cholesterol markers. So could you talk through the LDL, the HDL, the total cholesterol, and if you use those and how useful you find them? First step, and I always like basics, is get your cholesterol checked because even at around age 18 or 20, because one out of every 400 people may have an inherited disorder called heterozygous familial hyperlipidemia or FH, and you may be 18 years old with a cholesterol of 450, one out of every 400 is not all that rare. You know, in a typical high school in the States, that might be six kids. And it's better to know it at age 18 or 17 than to find out in an emergency room at age 45 with a heart problem. But in my practice, I do advanced cholesterol lab values. There's a variety of different ways. But for example, I can see two people with a cholesterol of um, 220 and the LDL cholesterol of 120. And they may be at very different risk for artery damage because we can break down the size of their LDL, the number of particles of their LDL. Usually it's a technology called NMR spectroscopy, but it's become a very low cost lab that's much more accurate. So I can have two people and I can speak to them differently. That's called personalized medicine and say, Nancy, your LDL is actually very favorable. You don't have much. They're large particles. And I think we can leave you alone and continue your good lifestyle. And Joe, your LDL of 120 is constructed largely of small, dense particles. And you've got way too many of them. And we've got to really kick that lifestyle in gear and your nutrition in gear. And we got to get that belly a little thinner. And, you know, it can help me define a more guided approach. But when we're talking population, a standard finger prick or church-based or work-based cholesterol is a good starting point. Right. It's a screen to see if it's worth digging further. So basically, if LDL comes up high, you'd be like, okay, I'll look at the particle number to see if and size to see if this is a problem. It can, yes. It's one of the things we can do to refine if they, everybody needs encouragement about lifestyle, but if they need uh, beyond that consideration of medication or more intense lifestyle. Right. So is it possible for someone to have a high LDL number, which is, you know, over the, the standard reference range, and it not be a problem because the size of their particles is large and a smaller number of particles, basically? Yeah, we, we broke up a little, but um, cholesterol is associated with developing heart disease. It, but association, and it is causative, there's no doubt. I mean, I reflect back when I was in cardiology training in Dallas, Texas, I took care of a little girl, 11 years old, who was known around the world. Stormy Jones was her name, sweet girl. And she was born with a genetic disorder where she had both genes defective. That was called homozygous FH. It's very rare. It's about one person in a million. But that little girl had had a heart attack, a bypass, a balloon by the age of 12, and to argue that cholesterol doesn't have a direct role in damaging arteries has many pieces of science behind it, animal and human, but I always reflect back on Stormy Jones. So cholesterol is important, but there's so much variability in human physiology. So when I'm dealing with one person, I try and define if their arteries are healthy or not. There are ways to determine if there's any early plaque, if there's any early endothelial damage. And if I see somebody with a fairly high cholesterol at age 60, for example, but they have no evidence of plaque, no evidence of endothelial damage, I'd have a very hard case to put them on a prescription drug in my mind uh, because there must be other factors that are protecting them. And yes, they may have an additional 30 or 40 years to worry about, but I'm really going to stress to that person lifestyle, healthy diet, exercise, weight management, blood pressure management, and not necessarily write a prescription drug. And it quite, you know, there's always the opposite too. There are people that have had a heart attack or a bypass and relatively modest risk factors. And then we really got to go on a search. 
we got to go on a search for other biomarkers like something called homocysteine, lipoprotein A, ferritin. There's a lot of people that are pre-diabetic that fall through the cracks and are suffering artery damage from their pre-diabetes, but it's really not been offered as a diagnosis. And that's kind of a very common one, for example. Right. With the homocysteine, for example, are you looking for the causes, right? You're trying to look a bit further back, right? So if you get some high cholesterol numbers and, and some particle numbers that are indicative, is homocysteine more indicative of a cause so you can refine your prescription, the treatment you recommend? Or is that just a, a basic filter for your assessment? No, I think the ultimate joy is trying to get back to the root cause. And the root cause, certainly the majority of it is lifestyle. And we've talked about that, food choices, which I'll go over carefully with patients, processed versus unprocessed, high in saturated fat versus low, you know, high in added sugars versus low, body movement, body fitness, body exercise, adequate sleep, methods of managing stress. Uh, for example, it's been shown that meditation can have a significant effect on lowering your cholesterol, kind of pieces of scientific data that are published that aren't talked about much. When you're stressed out, your cortisol level goes up, your blood sugar goes up, your blood cholesterol goes up, your blood pressure goes up. And a practice of breathing or yoga or meditation can fairly dramatically lower blood cholesterol. So, so then getting at the root cause. Now, the question is, after those basics, which need to be addressed every visit over and over, sleep, stress, nutrition, fitness, um, do we go further? Do we, we do know that there are environmental toxins, and we do know that heavy metals, we are exposed through cosmetics, through industrial exposure, through dental fillings. We often carry a burden of mercury and lead and cadmium. Smokers not only are ingesting all kinds of toxic carcinogens, but the ground in Virginia is said to be quite rich in cadmium which is fine if you have it in the battery that's powering your radio, but you don't really want cadmium in your bloodstream in your body. So you can use blood analysis, hair analysis, take a little snip of hair, or urine analysis and determine if a person has greatly elevated levels of some of the pesticides, herbicides, uh, pollutants like heavy metals. And sometimes a course directed at identifying and removing those can really restore a person's health to a much higher level. It's a slow process because you accumulate those things slowly and any plan to exit them by avoiding, uh, if it's an industrial exposure, taking more care or changing jobs. Don't walk on your lawn the day that they spray the pesticides or look for a more natural organic way to treat your lawn. Consider whether your mercury in your mouth might be a problem or not. You can get tested for that, for example, all those things. But then there are strategies to remove some of these toxins. Of course, considering eating organic versus non-organic to lower our uh, input of pesticides. These are all strategies. And then there are more advanced strategies. I, I'm a big fan, based on some very fascinating and rich scientific data, of the health benefits of sauna on our overall health and specifically our heart health. And the amount of data that supports it is surprisingly rich, but very rarely taught in the annals of medicine, of course. Is that any type of sonar or is that the infrared version? Well, the infrared is the hottest and most widely mentioned because in Japan, starting about 20 years ago, heart patients have been treated, heart patients who've had a heart attack, heart patients who've had um, blocked arteries or even the very serious problem called congestive heart failure have been treated with 15 minutes of infrared sauna followed by 30 minutes of rest. And it has been shown that they can enjoy dramatic improvements in health. And these are all actually published studies, scientific journals, some of them involving up to about 200 patients, which is getting to be a respectable size for a research project and all. So that's infrared sauna, which is a special kind of deeply penetrating heated dry sauna. Not that common in this country at this point. People can consider buying one for their home for under $1,000 up to a few thousand or finding a spa that might have an infrared sauna, which is growing interest in the country. 
But recently, as you may be aware, out of Finland came a large research study with 2,000 people that were asked, how often do you get in a sauna? How long do you sit in a sauna? And all that tracked with actually survival and heart health and the number of days a week that people use sauna and the number of minutes per session were kind of linearly related to overall health, which was large and shocking and made the news. And that's a slightly different form of sauna. It was um, dry sauna, but not infrared. So I think there's much hope in pursuing that. And the theory is that it may have something to do with detoxification. There's no doubt that the sweat that is generated in uh, such a thing as infrared sauna is rich in heavy metals, richer than your urine, richer than your blood. You're actually exiting these toxins from your body in your sweat. So I'm a big fan of that. Then you can get into other approaches, so-called oral chelation, juicing, using green vegetables like broccoli sprouts and oregano, parsley, and other greens to accelerate the exodus of these toxins from your body in a fairly easy and natural way. So it sounds like heavy metals in particular sound like something you take quite important, you think they're quite relevant and important to heart risk issues. Did you see that? I believe there's some studies with EDTA and heart disease more specifically and the impacts on it with some of the, the plaque and, and things on it. Am I correct in that? Have you seen those studies? And Yeah, I was not a fan of recommending chelation. And so let me just take a step back because not everybody going to be familiar with chelation. But because of industrial exposures to heavy metals in the 40s and the 50s, for example, a worker exposed to arsenic in an explosion or lead, there was an interest in trying to treat those acute toxicities. And various medicines like EDTA have been shown in those kind of exposures to be quite helpful. And they're, in fact, approved by the FDA for use in these industrial exposures to heavy metals, heavy lead, cadmium, mercury, and such. But in the process of some of those treatments, there were reports that people with heart disease were describing that they were having less symptoms. And some sharp clinicians were observing this and started to specifically treat some people with clogged arteries of their heart and their legs with chelation. And that, to this day, in the United States is not an FDA-approved treatment. You won't get paid for it. And um, in your charting, you uh, could be subject to some exposure for saying that's why you're treating them, uh, you know, using IV EDTA for the reversal of atherosclerosis as opposed to heavy metal toxicity. So all of that was kind of subject to derision from the standard medical community, including myself. If you would have asked me four years ago, can we talk about the science behind chelation? I know there's people that say they feel better, but do we have much science? You would have been very hard put. But some, again, very forward-thinking people about 10 years ago approached the National Institutes of Health and said, we need to resolve this. Is this witchcraft? Is this good care? And let's do a study. And surprisingly, the United States government came up with about $30 million and designed a trial using kind of standard IV chelation protocols in ultimately 700 people that had survived a heart attack. That's what was required to be entered in. And they were supposed to show up for about 40 weeks. Some of them got EDT-based intravenous infusions. Some of them got some vitamins, but there was no EDTA in there. And uh, at the end of that study, which took a little longer to complete than hoped, was a little bit more difficult to recruit patients. But the overall trend of the study favored an improvement in outcome, like the combination of being alive, freedom from a heart attack, freedom from needing a bypass and hospitalization in those that got the active chelation. And specifically, two groups, if any of those 1,700 people were diabetic or any of those 1,700 people had actually experienced a fairly large heart attack in the background in their history, they had a dramatic improvement. It was a 40% reduced chance of having a bad outcome. And if you had a pill that within about four to five years reduced those bad events by 40%, you'd have a, you know, a blockbuster new pill. So chelation looked good, actually. And the combination of IV chelation plus 
potent multivitamins because that was another aspect of the trial. It's called the TAC trial, uh, trial to assess chelation therapy, T-A-C-T, that the combination of IV chelation once a week and potent twice-a-day multivitamins had the biggest impact. But that was announced, I think it was around November 2012, so more than two years ago. And there's really been no movement since to seek out reimbursement or FDA approval. Most doctors clearly are not set up to offer intravenous therapy. There's a very small chance of harm. You can lower blood calcium levels because it's going to chelate minerals and calcium is one of those. So very often the mixture has to have some uh, nutrient and mineral support in it. But I have referred patients to colleagues of mine in the area that are experienced and certified in chelation. Great, great. Thank you for that because uh, the connection isn't appreciated by a lot of us. So I wanted to look at some of the, because I know you recommend some more accurate tests. For someone who really wants to know for sure their heart disease risk and where it's at, if the state of, of their plaques, what do you use to accurately and directly see what the picture is looking like? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that question because that's really my my passion, my passion is to teach people that there is a way to be very accurate, both by their blood work, and we talked about that, and by imaging, which we're going to talk about right now, to really nail down your personal risk of experiencing the number one killer in the Western world, heart disease, which can come on suddenly and without warning, and uh, the next day there's a funeral, tragically leaving spouses and children and parents wondering how did nobody pick up that there was you know, a burden of disease. I'll just give you a quick example. Sadly, a friend of mine lost her husband, who was a prominent businessman in my town, who was a very fit person, ate healthy, looked good, wasn't overweight, enjoyed athletics, and uh, a little over two years ago went out for a bike ride on vacation and never came back and uh, was found at the side of the road and shown by autopsy to have a 99% blocked widowmaker artery. And that shouldn't happen. I mean, my passion is to say that's tragic and we need to circle around that family with a lot of love, but let's not let the next family and the next family and the next family, you know, the Tim Russerts and the Jim Gandolfini, James Gandolfini from Sopranos and such. We just had a bank president in my town about three or four weeks ago experience the same tragic end to his life a man I'm sure was getting good medical care, I, I, absolutely. So there is uh, the most accurate way right now to know you're 45, 50, 55 years old, you're concerned that this number one killer in America could be creeping up inside silently, and you should be concerned, particularly if you're overweight or sedentary or blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar issues, smoked in the past, brother, sister, mom, dad with heart disease. There's a CAT scan that takes 10 seconds, 20 seconds. You lie down, you're pushed into a tube, a CAT scanner. It's not around your head. It's not claustrophobic. No IV, no injection of medication. The CAT scan is done. You go home, you get a report. It's called a coronary artery calcium scan or coronary artery calcium score, CACS. You can see the three heart arteries on the CAT scan without any injection of contrast material. Your arteries should contain no calcium. Calcium should be in your bones and your teeth. If your heart arteries have calcium, your heart arteries have plaque. And you're going to have that way before you ever need to have your bypass, your stent, or your heart attack therapy. So you can find out, and there's a number associated with it. If your score comes back zero, you have youthful arteries that are free of calcium and your 10 to 15 year risk of a heart event are extremely low. Keep living healthy, but you can take a sigh of relief. And if your arteries are prematurely calcified, you've got plaque. You may not be 80% blocked. You're probably not gonna need a stent or a bypass, but you need to see somebody about it. So that number could be 20 or 100 or 200. I get people that show up, I saw one yesterday, totally good looking guy, 61 years old, decent lifestyle. His calcium score was 1,100, mainly in the one artery we call the widow maker. That's a ton of burden of abnormal artery that we need to deal with by identifying why. And we've talked about some of that search. He had already had a stress test that was normal, so he doesn't need an angiogram, stent, or bypass. But I'm 
Now he needs a cardiologist who cares about lifestyle and all the things we talked about. We talked about yesterday about, you know, sauna and heavy metal assessment and advanced lipid blood work and a daily aspirin. He's a heart patient now. So I plead with people now. Right. I guess in that situation, you would kind of throw everything at it because that sounds like the worst. You were pointing out the worst case scenario, the worst score you're likely to see. Would you kind of like throw everything at that case? Like, should he be really worried and be just like, oh, I got to really change my lifestyle, heavy metal chelation, everything I can? Yeah, that person needs to become a good student of the disease. Reading my book, reading book by Dr. Dean Ornish, book by Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, many, many good resources, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. David Katz. There's plenty of good resources online for free or books or they watch the DVD Forks Over Knives. I mean, many good resources. And I encourage my patients to do all of that. But we ordered up a pretty in-depth analysis and we'll sit down in a few weeks and design a personalized plan. Now, on the other hand, I see people all the time, they're carrying extra weight, their cholesterol is 250, their diet isn't exactly what I'd call in line with nutritional goals, and their calcium score is zero at age 65. They've gone through six decades of life and are identifying no calcified plaque in their arteries and their risk is very low. And I don't want them going to fast food places and, you know, eating their French fries, but I can cut back a bit on their medical treatment and focus on lifestyle with a great sense of joy and relief. And I see that a lot. A brother died at age 44 and the sister is zero and is going to smile for the next few years that she isn't also carrying a burden of life-threatening plaque. The oddity about the test is in the United States, it's not covered by insurance in about 48 states. 10 years ago, places were charging seven or $800. It's very easy now to find that test under $150, sometimes under $100, which makes it very reachable for most people. Is it quite widely available, like a lot of hospitals have these machines? It's just a standard CAT scanner. You do have to have special software to calculate that score. But it'd be very surprising if most medium or large towns, at least one of the hospital systems or all of them, don't offer it. Yeah. As it's a CAT scan, is this something you shouldn't do too often because of the radiation? With your patients, if someone's got a, a, like a score of 1,000 or, or above, I guess you're tracking progress over time to make sure it's not increasing and you're reversing some of that damage. But are you concerned at all about radiation and, you, and do you do anything about it? Well, that's an excellent question, and I am a bit hesitant to repeat the CAT scan to follow their disease for two reasons. Every time you do it, it is some additional radiation. And number two, there is not much data that you can drive that calcium out of the artery. For example, the TAC trial, the chelation trial, didn't unfortunately assess calcium score. It would have been nice if we actually knew. So I don't know the natural history. I know the natural history tends to go up if you do nothing. There are some studies that your calcium score may go up 30% a year. So if your score is 100 this year, maybe 130 next year. That's just an average. It'll be less for some, more for some. But I'm not so sure what I do with a repeat calcium score because I fear they all go up. There is an alternative test called a carotid IMT, intimal medial thickness, this is an ultrasound. So ultrasound, of course, is no radiation. Ultrasound can be repeated. And there's about 700 medical studies on the value of having a special ultrasound machine with special software that measures the thickness of the wall of your carotid artery. And that is something you can track every year, every six months to make sure compared to databases that have thousands of people age matched and sex matched to make sure your arteries aren't rapidly getting thicker and more plaque-ridden, and hopefully actually seeing some improvement. So if I have somebody with a bad calcium score, I'm probably going to use an ultrasound technique to follow them so I don't need to keep exposing them to radiation. That's kind of a high-level approach, but we've got the disease that's the number one killer in America, so we're throwing all kinds of highfalutin, expensive technology at other issues it's about time and way overdue that we try and prevent a million heart attacks in the next couple of years in this country so families don't get ripped apart. Who would you recommend takes the calcium scoring test? Thank you for asking that. Not people who know they have heart disease. So if you've had a stent, a bypass, if you've had a previous angiogram that showed you've got 40% blockages, you already know you got a problem and you need to be working on it with somebody that can direct you. However, it would be 
somebody age 40 to 45 and up who has risk factors, brother, sister, mom, dad with early heart disease, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, high blood pressure, smoker, or maybe around age 50 to 55, just because you're halfway through life and you've got the number one killer in America lurking around. Uh, the American College of Cardiology, a fairly conservative group, gave very high endorsement of this coronary artery calcium score for people with risk factors. So you're 50 years old, you got high blood pressure, boom, American College of Cardiology endorsed, unfortunately not covered by insurance. They would leave it in a gray zone. If you're a perfectly healthy 50-year-old, do you need it? Well, I think that's a personal decision between you and your doctor. I tend to favor getting one because it's a very low dose of radiation and we still are dealing with the biggest silent killer in America. There's a very interesting documentary that came out two months ago called The Widowmaker, and it's available online, about 90 minutes. I'd encourage anybody to watch it. It's all about this topic of coronary artery calcium scoring and why is it not more available to make inroads into the health of Americans and identify those at risk. Great, great. Thank you for that. There are actually a lot of other blood markers. If you look at Wellness FX, I don't know if you know the Wellness FX lab for consumers. Which blood test is that, sir? It's not a specific blood test. It's a lab which is directed at consumers. So they call it's a company called Wellness FX. And some people are using those for blood panels. Right. So they have a, a large array. There's a few companies like this, but Wellness FX is the best known at the moment. So it's direct to consumer. They have a cardiovascular panel, which is why I bring it up. And there's quite a few things on it. So I wonder if you could just comment on some of the values that they've included in their panel, if you find them useful. Because it seems like to me, there's, there's so many markers we're linking to cardiovascular disease. It makes it kind of more complicated because we have all these markers and I'm sure someone like you could maybe get more data and get a better picture. But for the majority of us, it builds up this kind of complex mass of data and maybe some of them will be out of range, some of them aren't out of range. And we're like, okay, so where does this put me? I'm not really sure. Yeah, I agree. I am familiar with Wellness FX. There are some others. There's a, again, I have no financial ties to any of these. There's an organization that I very much like called lifeextension.org. They've been in Fort Lauderdale for 35 plus years, and you can directly get a kit and blood work, um, a male panel, a female panel, and they've got hundreds of thousands of data points built up over the decades. So you're right. I think it is worth what I have not seen the advanced lab tests we talk about, the particle number, particle size. I have not seen that available in a direct-to-consumer way. I, I'm not absolutely certain if that's on Wellness FX. But, you know, you're going to get a good screen, and you can learn quite a bit. But I do go back to the idea that um, imaging arteries remains the uh, kind of litmus test. Uh, you can have a lot of abnormalities in your bloodstream, but you really need to know if you've either got thickened carotid arteries by the ultrasound or if you have calcified heart arteries by a CAT scan, you need to know that at least once to make sense of the blood work. These biomarkers are all associations where the imaging studies are you know, direct imaging. So I favor the coronary artery calcium scan in some places requires a prescription, but since it doesn't involve insurance, not everywhere, you can often arrange it on your own. So, but I encourage people, I encourage people to pursue these direct blood tests, like you said. Yeah. Well, so I just wanted to go through a couple of them. You mentioned the NMR, which is, as I understand it, the most advanced blood test if you really want to understand your heart disease risk. Is that kind of the, the best one you find in terms of accuracy, getting the closest to the same bar as the calcium score if you're just looking at blood? Yes. In terms of blood, that LDL particle number, which is most commonly obtained through the um, liposcience NMR technology, is at the present time, I believe, still the most accurate particle in the blood you can measure. Yeah, great. So Wellness FX, they have something called uh, LP little a or lipoprotein A. Are you up to speed on that one? Do you find that one useful? Because it's a little bit similar in that it's looking specifically at low density lipoprotein, I understand. Yes. Um, lipoprotein A is a cholesterol particle that, you know, a smaller number of the public has heard about. Um, very large amount of science saying it's a blood test. The higher your level, the higher your risk of artery damage. It seems to be a uh, highly inherited abnormality. So I get it basically in pretty much everybody once. 
but I'm particularly aggressive in people that have a family history of early heart disease and their relatives, because that may be the factor. Um, usually in most labs, lipoprotein A should be under 30, and in some uh, patients of mine, it's over 200. It's seven, eight, nine times elevated above normal. What is still lacking a bit is an absolutely clear-cut um, trial that shows that lowering it, we can talk about lowering it in a minute, but lowering it makes a long-term difference just because there hasn't been such a trial designed and carried out long-term. Lifestyle can lower lipoprotein A. Hormonal balance of female and male hormones can lower lipoprotein A. Um, niacin is particularly good at lowering lipoprotein A. Then there's some work going back all the way to Linus Pauling that you can minimize the effects of an elevated lipoprotein A by taking vitamin C, strengthening the wall of your artery, taking some amino acids called lysine and proline, and that they may prevent the damage that lipoprotein A may do otherwise. So there is finally, there actually is a very strange therapy where much like dialysis, you can get your blood cleansed through a filter and this is a FDA-approved treatment of people like that little girl I mentioned, Stormy Jones, if she were still alive today. That's a therapy that would be used for somebody with a familial super high cholesterol. But that filter also takes out lipoprotein A. So if somebody has a very high level in vascular disease, that's an option. So uh, it's important, I believe, for people to measure their lipoprotein A. And um, again, it's genetic, but... I mentioned some things you can do. Great, great. So one that I've been using for a long time is uh, high-sensitivity CRP. Is that something you find useful? I do. Um, we've been measuring C-reactive protein for decades because we were measuring it to assess rheumatic fevers. So it has a history going back literally decades and decades. But then along came a patented test, the high-sensitivity test. And that seems to be more reflective of artery wall inflammation, and inflamed arteries are more prone to suffer heart attack, stroke, clot, and the rest. So you do not want an elevated high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, and uh, you want to measure it, and it is highly correlated with um, increased risk. So then I get on uh, a search for why it might be elevated, and most common would be abdominal obesity poor nutrition, a lack of exercise, poor sleep or sleep apnea. But you can also look for occult causes like gum disease, periodontal disease and such as a cause, uh, unsuspected prostate disease, prostatitis, uh, and probably a diseased gut are Western processed food, high in salt, sugar, and fat, causing gut disorders, lack of adequate microbiome health probably causes inflammation. So you got to work on the entire patient in a holistic way. And so I don't think we've really covered this properly, but inflammation is directly related to heart disease as well? Or is it a bit more of a, a wavy line? Yeah, no, it's it's prime time to measure inflammation, high sensitivity, C-reactive protein. There's also a number of other markers out now like myeloperoxidase and a test called the plaque test that give insight into um, inflammation in vessel walls and can be quite useful in a comprehensive assessment. Great, great. So in, in terms of some of these indicators like CRP, the lipoprotein, they've got others like apoliprotein, the HDL, the LDL. None of these are binary as I understand them, right? So if, if someone has a, a high CRP score, say it's four or something like that, is that a sure thing that they have some kind of heart disease risk as well? Or could it just be related to some inflammation or something like that? You really you're using these as like indirect indicators and, and you can't trust the picture uh, from that, but it's just kind of a notice, uh, I should go and see a physician and investigate, maybe get this calcium score. Yeah. If it's elevated, it should prompt a search into a lifestyle. It should prompt a search into, as I say, gut health, gum health, prostate health, any other, even though it's felt to be largely a vascular marker. And it's both in, it's a marker of the disease and it participates and actually vessel damage. But sometimes it can be very frustrating and unclear. I've had people with very high C-reactive proteins, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. There's a very limited experience with using a shotgun after searching for every possible cause, using a shotgun approach 
an antibiotic like minocycline, the tetracycline family. And I have been taught that and I've had rare experience to do that with patients after a very thorough evaluation for every other kind of cause of elevated C-reactive protein. And it came down dramatically and stayed down. Great, great. I wanted to tackle one thing because you, could you go over the diet you recommend? As background, I'm paleo and we've often talked about ketogenic diets and high fat diets on here. Uh, with people like Jimmy Moore and so on. So could you give your perspective where you come from with respect to heart disease? What kind of diet and lifestyle are you recommending? I like to stay in every aspect where I can grounded in the science that's available. And in terms of artery health, heart disease, survival and heart disease, the weight of the data is not in the ketogenic or paleo world, the weight of the data, like by 100 to 1 in terms of science, at least, is in the world of nearly or completely plant-based diet. Okay, so is that a vegan diet? Yeah, well, yeah, vegan, uh, I'll distinguish those very briefly, but you can look at epidemiologic studies like the blue zones, five areas in the world where people live the longest with the greatest freedom from heart disease, where none of them are completely vegan, except actually Loma Linda, California, is one of those five blue zones, the longest lived community in America. And 10% of that community is strictly vegan. The other 40% are vegetarian and the the remainder are omnivores. They are the longest lived people in the United States and they have the highest percentage of vegans in the United States of any community because of the Seventh-day Adventist church there. So you can look at epidemiologic studies like that or you can look at the data on heart disease reversal, which is a concept that is scientifically sound that Two centers started studying, actually three, uh, Nathan Pritikin and what's called the Pritikin Longevity Center in Florida. He was an engineer, not a physician, but Dr. Dean Ornish, a cardiologist, began in the early 1980s a lifestyle that is a largely vegan diet, if you really read between the lines. It's a very low oil, no added oil diet, so less than 10% of calories are from fat. He does allow his patients to have some non-dairy fat and some egg whites. Uh, So by strict definition, it's um, vegetarian, not vegan. And he has now pursued that dietary research for more than 30 years. It's actually approved by Medicare because the data is so strong that for heart patients, it can halt and reverse their symptoms and disease and minimize their need for medical care. Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn began the same research project at the Cleveland Clinic in the 1980s and has similarly shown follow-up catheterizations, follow-up on patients' health, dramatic reversal of heart disease without stent, without bypass. And his diet is strictly vegan. And again, under 10% of calories are from fats, kind of the opposite approach to many ketogenic diets. And uh, very compelling, Dr. Ornish has taken his program which is more than diet. Dr. Ornish emphasizes 30 to 60 minutes of walking, an hour of stress management by meditation or yoga, and group support, and has shown that in prostate cancer, you can halt and reverse prostate cancer with his program. And he's embarking now on a program in breast cancer, which I suspect, but we'll have to wait. The results will be positive. So it's dramatic research. It's not out of date. I hear some of my colleagues say, oh, Dr. Ornish's data is it's aged, it's old. Well, he's working with Nobel Prize winning scientists and continuing to put out some of the most cutting edge data on nutrigenomics and epigenetics. And his diet is one that if all of America were to follow to a large part, we'd have a tremendous drop in the burden of chronic diseases like dementia, diabetes, cancer, and heart disease without question. It's been scientifically proven. So my recommendation, I lead in in Detroit I lead a patient support group for people striving to stick to Dr. Ornish, Dr. Esselstyn, the Pritikin program, the Dr. Neil Barnard, you know, reversing diabetes program. And we have about a thousand volunteer people in the area that get together for meetings and and group sessions. And it's been profoundly effective in improving their health at very low cost, very grassroots. Yeah. So what do you think of the paleo principles of dairy and grain avoidance? Would you include those in your recommendations or are those not relevant? Uh, And I'm sorry, the question was about grains? Yeah, grains and dairy in general. Well, I'd love everybody to stop eating dairy. I don't view it as a health food in any setting. And uh, it's a tremendous burden on animals 
and the environment. And uh, if somebody's not willing to eliminate animal products from their diet, but be willing to eliminate dairy, it's one of the most frequent food allergens that people react to. Uh, it may be involved in the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes in children and young adults. And I wish we could legislate a dairy-free world. Uh, even the Harvard School of Public Health has advised greatly minimizing your dairy intake and replacing it with healthy hydration like water, teas, and coffee unsweetened, even alcoholic drinks uh, to a limited degree. But in grains, I know it's contentious. I have had the pleasure of spending time with Dr. Bill Davis Wheat Belly, Dr. David Perlmutter, Grain Brain, and I think also a name that's not as well known, Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's an Italian scientist now at Harvard, who's really doing amazing research on what grains do to celiac patients and what's the actual pathways, molecular pathways. And I tend to favor Dr. Fasano, who I think I'm fairly quoting that 1% of the population is showing signs of celiac disease. Six to seven percent of the population, if tested, shows signs of celiac, excuse me, gluten sensitivity. But that leaves over 90 percent of the population that neither has celiac or documented gluten sensitivity. And if they're reacting to grains, they're reacting very briefly in a way that's not a big deal. And they should be part of a healthy diet. If you look at the scientific data, which I just reviewed and published a blog on in the past six weeks, even just in the last two years, the data on whole grains and health is an amazingly strong body of data for survival, for freedom from heart disease, freedom from diabetes, freedom from cancer. And it's always a question, what's it substituting? If you're eating whole wheat pasta, whole wheat bread, wheat germ, you're probably not eating donuts and fried food and vending machine food because you're exhibiting an intelligence and a selection on the healthier part of the spectrum. So it may be, now I always encourage my patients that are having problems, take a four-week elimination diet from gluten if you're having runny noses, rashes, if you're having uh, headaches unexplained, maybe even for an unexplained cholesterol elevation. It could be that it's inflaming your gut, and four weeks will give us some input on how you feel and biological markers. But I eat whole grains consistently, and recommend to my patients they do the same if they're not in that small percentage. Great, thank you for that clarification. So if someone is on a paleo diet or a ketogenic high-fat diet, is there a test they could take? Would it be the calcium score? Like, would you recommend they take that if they want to like assess if this is having some impacts? Yeah, well, my comment and advice for those that are following a ketogenic diet is if you're doing it for 10 days to fit into a tuxedo for a wedding, it probably will work and you're probably not going to do yourself any harm. Long term, again, I have to go to science, which uh, there were at least two or three major studies saying long term, low carb ketogenic diets are associated with increased risk of death. These are studies involving tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. Yes, they're databases. Yes, they're association studies, but they're strong because there is no data that you live longer with a ketogenic diet. And in the last nine months, there's been a specifically a study that ketogenic diets after heart attack are associated with increased risk of dying. So I strongly advise my patients not to follow ketogenic diets. And if they choose to, yes, I think they should have all the biomarkers. If they don't know of atherosclerosis, then they should be having calcium scoring and possibly the carotid ultrasound testing. But I would advise them against it. I know it's all the rage, but it is a stress on the body. It's a stress on the adrenals. And, you know, the healthy carbs found in vegetables, even starchy vegetables and whole grains are uh, adrenal pleasing sources of nutrition. Great, great. Thanks for the clarification. This is winding up. This is kind of a thing that affected a lot of my friends in their 20s. People were working very hard and were taking a lot of caffeine, generally very stressed. We were getting a lot of pains in our heart, you know, around the heart area. And one of my friends went to a doctor and he said it was just stress and caffeine. I don't know if you've come across this before. Is it an issue or is it just a symptom which isn't really that important? Maybe too much caffeine or something? Yeah, caffeine in general. I mean, it's interesting. There is some genetic variation and there is even a blood test you can get. It's a SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism, that tells you if you metabolize caffeine rapidly or slowly. If you metabolize it slowly, it's going to hang around longer and make give you more 
tendency to feeling jittery or racing heart. And if you metabolize it rapidly, otherwise. But um, with that aside, if it doesn't bother you, caffeine is, in most studies, a health food. Now, of course, like everything, you dump in some uh, manufactured whitener and sugars, and you don't have coffee anymore. You have some modified, processed anti-health drink. And certainly a frappuccino isn't a cup of coffee. But black coffee, dark roasted coffee, is uh, generally two, three cups a day, a good boost in the morning, a good brain support issue. I always would cut it off about two in the afternoon so it doesn't interfere with sleep. It's a rich source of antioxidants. There's a little concern that your readers may know about that some coffees may be contaminated with mycotoxins, fungal toxins. You don't really know it because it's not measured and reported on American coffee sources. It is in Europe. In fact, there's limits in Europe where they can't be sold. Coffee beans sit outside and they can be get moldy and the mold can get into the um, coffee beans. So you can ask around where you buy your coffee. It's not a topic uh, a lot of people know about, and it may be a source of some illness for some people that are sensitive or are drinking lower quality coffees that may have mycotoxins. But with those couple of comments aside, I am pro-coffee. My heart patients ask me, I tell them, enjoy a cup of black coffee. Uh, I certainly also urge them to enjoy green tea or any of the teas, actually herbal teas, uh, hibiscus tea, uh, chamomile tea before bed, wonderful source of uh, soothing and sleep support. Right. So it doesn't sound like there's any specific mechanism there, which would be giving people heart pain from just coffee and maybe it's more like stress. Right. There should be no heart pain. Okay, great. So where should someone look first to learn more about your topic? Are there any good books, your books, or presentations on the subject you'd reference? Sure. I appreciated that, and I probably do need to get back to some hospital rounds here. But I do have an active website, www.drjoelkahn.com, and that's D-R-J-O-E-L-K-A-H-N.com. And all the blogs and TV interviews and podcasts and things I've done over the last few years are there. Uh, And I encourage anybody to take a peek. I do have two books out uh, last year, The Whole Heart Solution, W-H-O-L-E, published by Reader's Digest. And this year, a self-published book, but they're both on Amazon. It's got the title, Dead Execs Don't Get Bonuses, How to Survive Your Career with a Healthy Heart, which I think is an important topic. And the title has caught a lot of people's attention, says it's a real plea to not be one of those dead execs or dead anybody's for as long as you can. I would encourage anybody to read anything by Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, Dr. Neil Barnard, Dr. Garth Davis in Houston, all active scientists, researchers, clinicians that I think are speaking from the heart about overall health and sort of bucking the trend that all fats are good and animal products are benign. We just don't speak about the environment enough. We just don't speak about animal rights enough. And uh, we have to have a holistic approach to our plate. Our plate represents an impact on forests and an impact on our waterways, an impact on our grandchildren's world. And our plates represent you know, a process that is very often extremely cruel and extremely unfair to beings that feel and sense pain and terror. And it's as if we can't talk about that. It, we have uh, labels, paleo, Mediterranean, ketogenic, but uh, that's, that's only partial descriptions. Uh, I like to eat a kind diet and my plate is filled with kindness. So I hope that spills into my life as much as possible. Thanks so much for all those references. There's a, there's a lot of material for people to get through. We'll put all this stuff in the show notes, of course. One last question. In your own personal life, are there biomarkers that you track on a routine basis? What, what do you do in terms of collecting data for yourself, for optimizing health and performance, whatever? Yes. I mean, I'll do inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein, advanced lipid tests like LDL particle number and size. I'll look at my vitamin D levels. I'll look at my male sex hormones, estradiol, total and free testosterone. I try and keep those optimal through natural ways, uh, exercise, weight loss, uh, weightlifting, and such healthy diets, toxin-free diets that don't interfere with the process. You know, blood sugar, insulin sensitivity, fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, important markers. So those would round out the majority that I'm doing, homocysteine level. Great. Thank you very much for that. 
Well, Joel, it's been it's been really great to have you on the show. You know, we covered a lot of ground today with a lot of markers, and I'm sure it's going to clarify a lot for the audience. Well, there's so much people can do. They're in control of their health. And it starts with realizing that, really realizing the power of food, the power of fitness, the power of abstaining from smoking, the power of sleep, the power of friendship, and then getting credible information. And your podcast has done a wonderful job and I'm very uh, honored to be able to share uh, with your audience. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day, sir. You too. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website, verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.